Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombre in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony, and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live, and like the talks themselves, with no frills and little or no editing, to bring you the arguments of the evening, direct and unfiltered. Thank you very much, and thank you for Full Space to, uh, for inviting me and inviting us, inviting us all here. Um, uh, thank you, for, yeah, thank you main, mainly to you for coming. This is a, a conversation. We'll, I'll, I'll introduce you to a panel, but, um, uh, and they'll have a few uh, remarks at the beginning. Uh, and then I'm going to throw it open to you. Um, I have no, some people have a real problem with the idea of people... Uh, standing up saying this is just a point really uh, 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 talks I have I have and uh, I think this it's in the spirit of this event um, there is no problem with that however with some caveats I'd like to uh, in the spirit of the event draw 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 your attention to the the band wires rule of negative self definition in 1970s which they wrote in 1977 um, they they had seven rules for their, for their angular, one might argue, post-punk uh, uh, music. Uh, number one, no solos. Number two, no decoration. Number three, and I think this one's key, when the words run out, it stops. Uh, number four, no chorusing out. Number five, no rocking out. Uh, and number six, key of all, keep to the point. Uh, number seven, no Americanisms, but, you know, we're friends. I, I won't mind a, an odd yo or whatever, if, if, that, if that sneaks into what you're saying. Um, but so bear, bearing those in mind, um, I, I, I thought it was, a, you know, really fascinating, the idea of, of, uh, of punk and architecture. Um, I think it was Mark, well, it was Mark Fisher who wrote, uh, punk is unimaginable in London today. Uh, but then that makes you think, was there ever a punk architecture? Is, is a punk architecture imaginable? And I think that's uh, something we have to think about. Was, it, was there a punk architecture when there was punk? Um, and, can we, and can we have, and if there wasn't, <laughs> can we have one now? Uh, to help us discuss some of these ideas, we've got a great bunch of people to, to help us. I'm going to introduce you to them. Um, they're going to have a few words, and then I'm going to uh, ask them something. That I've, got, I've got a few things I want to ask them, so I'm going to be selfish. But after that, um, up to you uh, um, to say what you have to say, bearing in mind 
uh, wires, rules of negative self-definition, no rocking out, no choruses. Um, so first, uh, Charles Holland. Can Charles, can you make yourself known? There's Charles over there. Uh, Charles is architect, teacher, writer, principal of Charles Holland Architects. Where did they get these names from? A design and research practice whose current work includes residential, civic, and public art projects. He's also a professor of architecture at University of Brighton, where his research, research focuses on housing and new settlements, particularly in a suburban and rural urban setting. And I think that's a very pertinent idea. The suburban and its role in, uh, in punk is key. Uh, Charles currently contributes a column to RIBA Journal on utopias. Piers, Piers Taylor. Piers is just down here. Um, architect, broadcaster, academic, studied originally in Australia with Glenn Merkip, unit master at Cambridge, co-founder of the Architectural Association graduate program, AA Design and Make, founder of Mitchell Taylor Workshop, Invisible Studio, and currently works out of a studio constructed with no drawings and only using local amateur labor. There may be a key in this. He is currently undertaking a PhD by practice for which he received scholarship funding titled Contingent Negotiation, which explores the role of the ad hoc, the chance, and the contingent in architecture. Are these values, punk values? Something for us to discuss. Um, Kaz, Kaz Facey, hello. Uh, Kaz has over 15 years experience in communications and architecture, starting out uh, in a native Melbourne after graduating uh, from a degree in visual arts. Came to the UK, worked at EMAP Construct and went on to manage the awards program at the RIBA, including the Sterling Prize and Royal Gold Medal. Um, she's now working at Ing. She's spoken at the Architecture Foundation, Turncoats, Port Elliot Lit Fest and Chaumont Poster Festival. And she designed a book on Barney Bubbles, one of the great kind of graphic designers uh, associated with the punk and post-punk movement. Um, and lastly, we have Shumi. Shumi Bose. Yay. Uh, Shumi is Senior Lecturer, Coordinator of Contextual Studies in Architecture at Central St. Martins, Curator of Exhibitions at the RIBA. She co-curated the British Pavilion for 2016 for the Venice Biennale, and she's taught at the AA, Bartlett, University of Westminster, and the RCA. She also worked at Blueprint, um, which was a very good thing to do. Uh, recent editorial uh, con contributions include working with Rainer de Graaf on his book Four Walls and a Roof for University Press. Uh, and other stuff. So these are the people that are going to help us lead this. They're going to speak for a few minutes, and then um, I'm going to throw it out to you guys uh, and ask for your comments, points, in response to what they have to say. But Charles, seeing as you're standing up, are you all right to kick us all off? Yeah. Okay. Um, right. Hello. Uh, thanks, Tim. Um, so... What was I going to say? Well, I thought I'd start with a apocryphal quote from um, Sid Vicious. Um, Sid Vicious was asked um, how he felt about the fact that the man on the Clapham omnibus uh, might think that his music was tuneless, aggressive rubbish. And uh, Sid Vicious said, I don't care what the man on the Clapham omnibus thinks because the man on the Clapham omnibus is a cunt. Um, <laughs> And anyone, any architect who's done uh, some community outreach or public participation might know that that's a problematic approach. <laughs> so, 
at the heart of that is a kind of problem, I suppose, or a sort of crisis in the idea of a punk attitude in architecture. Architecture is a profession. It's probably worth uh, digressing very briefly as to what the nature of a profession is. And at the heart of a profession is a sort of pact, in a way, a deal, which is the opposite of the deal that you get if you're a pop star. So if you're a pop star, on the whole, you have no chance of earning a modest living. But you do have a possibility of becoming immensely wealthy and incredibly famous. And you represent, for people generally, a kind of rebellious um, fuck-youism and a chance to live out a kind of fantasy alternative existence. That's the opposite of being a professional. The idea of a profession, well, the bargain at the heart of that is you do get to earn a living, you do get to charge fees, you do get a modicum of respect, but you never get a chance to say fuck you to people. You have to always behave responsibly. That is the scenario. So there's a kind of uh, paradox or contradiction in the idea of a kind of punk architecture for that reason. Um, I kind of think, well, that sort of suggests where, where do you go with that? Where do you go with this question? Where do you go with the topic? And um, I suppose um, a more useful way to look at it, for me, is if a sort of the cartoon rebelliousness of punk isn't really much of an option, i.e. your career is going to be pretty short-lived, um, post-punk might offer a more useful set of models. And again, I kind of think of a story I was told, which was about um, um, uh, Ben Kelly, the designer of the Hacienda. And this kind of intersects with post-punk, I guess. So Ben Kelly designed the Hacienda, which is obviously owned by Factory Records and New Order, kind of quintessential, well, growing out of the kind of quintessential post-punk band of Joy Division. And um, uh, notoriously, Ben Kelly tried to run an architectural design practice and party as hard as New Order and people in Factory Records. Um, whilst their careers went from strength to strength, Ben Kelly suddenly realised that actually you can't run an architecture office like that. Um, there's things like drawing issues that have to go out, and there's a certain kind of level of responsibility and winning new work and all sorts of tedious things. I think he was working before um, OGU notices, but nonetheless, Ben Kelly's hedonistic lifestyle took its toll on the practice. So um, there's a kind of sense there that um, these are very different activities. Um, and... Uh, but what is useful, I guess, about post-punk uh, for me, as I suppose, um, although it's obviously opened up by punk, what it pursues is something much more kind of interesting and diverse. And I guess post-punk for me means a certain kind of experimentalism about, in post-punk sense, about what the music is, a kind of uh, a transdisciplinary kind of approach to music, different genres, different styles, um, different approaches to kind of identity, um, to gender, to all sorts of things which become very fluid in the world of post-punk um, and are therefore offer opportunities to reinvent what might be a stullifyingly dull profession as we know it. Um, so for me, um, that the question might be reframed as, yeah, where is the post-punk in architecture? Thank you very much. Round of applause, ladies and gentlemen. Come on. <laughs> Piers. That was some pretty, pretty good. Uh, he's read the manifesto, that man. Let's see what you can do. Thank you very much. So I've worked out that I, out of our four contributors, I'm the oldest by some margin, and I'm actually old enough to have 
lived through punk the first time around, and I, I actually um, remember um, cities when they were empty and vessels for interesting things to happen. And I think if you're any younger than about 50, the chances are you can't remember that. Even in London, it's within my sort of teenage memory that places like this were sort of rich with potential. And I think one of the big questions that we can talk about tonight is, you know, how can we ever be punk if that potential has gone? But I think particularly now we are um, seeing the most conservative applications of our agency as architects. As architects. And I think, I mean that in four ways. So I think in the terms that, that we procure building, procure buildings, how we construct buildings, how we debate buildings, but also what these buildings are in themselves, I think are more orthodox and more conservative than they have ever been. Because what they are now, the landscape that we see in front of us as architects are buildings that are static and well-crafted. That's a kind of ubiquitous presentation of architecture. So even if our tastes may be different, these vessels that we see that are presented to us in magazines are, I guess, debated on terms of you know, the, the form and your taste. And I think that, in a way, um, what's very different now... So when I look at architects in their 60s, you know, actually, most of them had progressive beginnings. So even if you take a really conservative practice now, the most, the most conservative practices who were, or practitioners in their 60s grew up where there was this sense that you would automatically be somehow countercultural. But I think also what's interesting is that more than anywhere now we have a culture that needs countering. But of course, I don't really see that culture being countering. So I think um, for me as, a, as an architect that's interested in making, I think what's really interesting is that when I look around and I see all these buildings, I see buildings that are beautifully made without exception. And I'm much more interested in buildings that are badly made because one of my favorite bands, which is The Fall, is a really interesting touchstone, I think, for many of us, because Marquis e. Smith would talk about rock and roll being a vehicle where you could mistreat instruments to explore feelings. And for me, growing up with punk, one of the most interesting, I guess, lessons for me was that regardless of my skill or my technique, I could still do this thing. So the best records in punk are made by people that can't play. For me, the most interesting buildings are made by people that can't make buildings. I think as there is this sort of uniform, consistent presentation of architecture, which again, regardless of the shape it is and the color it is, it is this well-made thing. And I feel kind of sick when I look at younger architects presenting their work as well-crafted, as if somehow that is an end. You know, because I guess the other interesting thing about punk was that it was a vehicle to explore other things. So the song, the idea was never a thing in a way that would be debated as a, as a piece of music on its own terms. It was always a way of making a point, a way of making some kind of change. And when I look around me in architecture now, I feel really depressed. And I think if I was coming out of architecture school now in my 20s and I looked at the work that was being done by architects who seemingly their only ambition for that work is that it can get in design. I think I would be wondering, you know, what is this shit? It was brief. There we go, Kaz. Hi, everyone. My name's Kaz. I'm not a 
an architect and I'm not a punk, so I'm just going to get my imposter syndrome anxiety right out there now. Um, I think I'm probably... There's a queue forming for that. Don't worry. Don't I think worry I've probably about... Been, I've probably been invited about, long. I think I've counted about three potential punks in here. Well, yeah, that's, I know there's one. I, I might be coming to that. Um, so I think probably the reason I've been invited along is because I'm a pop culture obsessive and um, I've got quite strong opinions. Maybe I'm a bit of an asshole. I don't know. You tell me by, by the time we get to the end of it. But um, I just wanted to relay um, the story of the first time I ever met an architect, which was in my native Melbourne in the 90s. I'd um, been in Asia for six months surfing, so I was pretty loose, as they say in Australia, pretty relaxed. I came back and I pitched up at this architecture practice to help them out for a while. And I'd been studying, my degree was actually in women's studies and visual arts, and my thesis was in corporeal feminism and the car in Australian cinema. And I just love saying that out loud now because it just still freaks people out to this day. My parents were delighted with my choice. Anyway, so I spent years looking at, you know, bodies in space, unruly bodies, a lot of... A lot of um, a lot of thinking about, you know, fecundity and um, uncontainable bodies, but particularly how they relate to space. And in Australia, there's this obsession with, you know, there's the city, there's the suburbs, and there's the outback. So, so by the time I got to this architecture practice, I thought these people, I don't re really know any architects, but I assume they're kind of like artists, but they make buildings. And I got there, and of course, being a non-architect, they could sniff that out straight away, so nobody spoke to me for the whole day, until I was doing some sort of menial... T I, was putting, um, I was putting stickers on envelopes to send them out at the end of the day, because this was the 90s. And um, this architect raced over to me and said, oh my God, what are you doing? You're doing it wrong because the stickers were not within the tiny little marks that had been printed on the envelopes in which the stickers went. So that was my first experience. It got better for, I have to say, of course it got better from there, but I think the professionalism of architecture, and if you run a practice and you worry about what the stickers look like on your um, envelopes, you're worrying about a lot. The professionalism of architecture is at odds with punk, because if you think about what Malcolm McLaren did, he spent many, many years at art school getting kicked out of art school, but developing ideas and collaborating with people like Fred Vormorell, hanging out with King Mob Echo, um, uh, and of course meeting Jamie Reed in um, Croydon, as we all know. But what he did when he had these ideas was put them in the hands of amateurs, and that's actually where the strength of punk comes from. And that's what you know, architecture, I think, can never really do. If you look at a, a garment that was made by Vivian and Malcolm in, like, 1974, the strength of it is that Vivian, it was, they're just such strong ideas, but Vivian didn't really know how to make them. And amateurism is a powerful, powerful thing, and I think that's where the strength of punk comes from, and that's at odds with architecture. Sorry, and you all don't dance as well, so. Sorry? Go ahead. Sorry, Shumi. No, you're right. I was thinking of my question for Kaz. <laughs> On you go, Shumi. Sorry. Round of applause for Shumi before she speaks, because I forgot. That means you don't do it after. <laughs> apologies. All right, I'm going to add a caveat to Tim's list of wire-related caveats to say no apologies, because um, I missed punk by quite a way, being born a bit too late. Um, having said that, I did grow up listening to it. Um, lots of the music of punk and the kind of culture and aesthetic of punk appealed to me. 
Um, but I don't think I ever identified as one. I was a hideous hippie as a teenager, so also um, a sort of pop cultural bracket that I missed, technically, but didn't stop me identifying with it. Thinking about it a little bit, because I did grow up in... Um, well, I grew up half in northern England and half in India. But looking at, say, the aesthetics of punk, I think I appreciated what was going on, but I didn't identify with it for... This is going to sound really dumb, and I realise even more now why. Um, there aren't any brown people in punk pictures, and so it was fine. Um, it's not, I didn't feel excluded, but I didn't feel like that was somewhere where I particularly identified with. Plus, you know, for an Indian girl, wearing lots of eyeliner isn't really rebellious at all. It's the most conventional thing you could do. And I didn't have to do, I didn't have to do a lot of, um, you know, extroverted things to shock the hell out of my parents. I'd just want to go to Meadowhall or something, and that would be enough to, to, to my very conservative, um, traditional Indian parents that I had. So I didn't really have to do an awful lot of um, pushing against the margins to... <laughs> be upsetting as teenagers might want to do um, but I did like it and I did kind of understand that there was this need to push against something that seemed sort of um, conformist it just seemed that I mean the other half of my life I grew up in Calcutta which is probably the most ungovernable rebellious city as it was so this um, movement that emerges from the suburbs I think Croydon's already been mentioned um, I could appreciate it on an intellectual level, on an aesthetic level, but I didn't necessarily identify with it myself. Okay, so moving on a little bit further, when I was at Central St. Martin's a long time ago, um, I teach there now, but I did study there as well, I had a tutor called Simon, um, who was a proper punk, and who was incredibly scornful of my sort of romantic appreciation of punk. I liked things like Rage Against the Machine, and he would be like, that's not fucking punk, you weren't around, shut up. And... Um, as he was feeding me rollies in the pub and stuff. But there was one project where I sort of adopted punk um, as a sort of ethos, where as <laughs> you, can, you can judge this how you want, but I decided for my design project that nothing needed to be done at all, that I wouldn't make any design moves and just leave the city as it was. And the punk attitude, I suppose, that I adopted into that project was that it was about doing it yourself. If skateboarders wanted to create you know, a skate-friendly environment in the city, fucking deal with the fabric of the city. Don't ask for a skate park. That's clearly the least punk thing you could do. And Simon wanted to give me a first for that project, and my other tutor failed me. Um, so I think I thought about this DIY or die aspect of punk most deeply, partly because um, when I signed up for the course at CSM, we were promised that it would be a Reba Part 1 course. They didn't actually get that through at the time that I was studying, so halfway through the course, we were told, no, you're not going to be able to study architecture, and I was pissed off about this, as you can imagine. Um, so I then started getting really into vernacular architecture, as has been mentioned by a couple of the speakers today, um, architecture that's, or buildings that aren't built by qualified architects. Growing up in Calcutta, I was surrounded by incredibly inventive and, to me, materially rich and socially rich um, slum environments, which I decided to get interested in as to how these people decide to configure and um, govern their spaces and started... I then worked for a book publisher where we worked on books about riot girls and no noise and things like this. And I think that sort of pushed me into being interested into figures like John F.C. Turner, um, the number of people who came up with no plan and... Um, other systems which I suppose would galvanize this amateurish, vernacular, slightly rebellious spirit to provide opportunities within larger systems. And I think if we're looking for a punk in architecture, perhaps that's where we might find some roots.
for example, the project that I've been researching at the moment, and this is the, about, I'm wrapping up, um, <clears throat> was a project by um, two students, Nabil Hamdi and Nicholas Wilson, uh, Wilkinson, rather they were students in 1978 at the AA, and they come up, came up with a project called PSHAC, which stands for Primary Support Structures and Housing Assembly Kits. Um, not very wieldy name. But PSHAC um, was basically about providing shell structures, which then, I suppose, tenants' organizations, tenants' associations, would be given fairly hardcore assembly kits as to how you could physically build the structure of the building. This isn't about decoration. It was really about wiring, piping, sewage, really getting people to build um, buildings. And if that sounds kind of familiar, it's because it echoes absolutely a project that was in the 2016 Architecture Pavilion that Tim mentioned earlier. Um, we were working with a group of professionals who are in Hackney Council at the moment called Naked House, and they're proposing exactly the same idea. I mean, it's really not altered at all from Handy's uh, Pishak uh, proposal, which is about providing shell structures and um, allowing people to do it themselves. So I guess that's where I'd say punk might be in architecture at the moment. Thanks. Well done. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm just going to have a quick question. Um, we, the, the, the idea of self-build has been bubbling away here. Um, Piers, I know, I, I just wanted to ask you, uh, you've, you, you know, part of your career has been working with the, the AA designer Make, um, and you've talked about uh, making stuff for yourself. Isn't self-build a bit hippie? Uh, yeah, it is, totally. Um, I don't do it like that. I think, I think um, part of the reason I self-builded was not but because... But can it be punk and hippie? What's that, pippy? Well, actually, um, there's a... I Punky? Think, I read this thing about a, um, uh, an album by the Mekons saying... or I think they said about one of, their, one of their best albums that there's actually only three chords that separates punk from country anyway. So I think you can be a bit of a hippie and a punk at hey, the same time. Hey, there's a long way from country to hippie. We can, we can, we can char start charting it. To return to the point, isn't self-build a bit hippie? Um, yeah, it is. But I think the point of self-build for many people originally was that there was a way of making buildings and spaces that you were shut out of. And it was a way of claiming some of that for yourself. And um, the reason that we built stuff was that we, wanted to, we, we were hungry to build. And there wasn't the commissions, the work, the, the proper way of doing things. So we just found ways to do it. And I think, you know, what's curious about the work that I've done that is self-built is that, in a way, the stuff that we did at the AA is kind of super conventional. You know, it's building architecture students doing stuff for architects. And it's kind of talking about it in a way that architects would understand. The reason I left that program was that, actually, I wanted to do something with people that didn't even realize they were doing architecture. So the conversations we'd have at the AA were the conversations anyone in this room would be familiar with in any architecture school up and down the country or in the world, which is, you know, um, there's a formal conversation where making is in inverted commas and, you know, we receive it as this kind of revered activity. It's also super expensive, people paying 30 grand a year to come and do this thing. And I, in a way, um, there's also... Um, at, at Hook, I would say Hook Park, there's almost no connection with the context within this, that this stuff is made. So the stuff that we make now in some ways is not only with people that, is, um, that don't really know they're doing architecture, but there is no real conversation in those terms about the kind of craft of making. And I think that, you know, for me, the, 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 the self-build 
pioneers in some ways were quite punky in taking the stuff that was around them, using it outside the system, planning system, outside of the way of receiving or, or way of presenting architecture. So in a way, I would argue that self-build is or can be quite punk. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not convinced personally. Uh, that, that'll be up for you to take over. I think that in a way, I, I would have... I, I, no, 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 I know, I know, I, know. I should yeah, have said more. that. I should have said that. No, no, one more point. One more point on this is that the, architects... They'll come back to you. All right. right. You're wrong, but they'll come back. Charles, um, how comfortable are you with the idea of craft? Are you... Are you... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's the, the, the... You know, the, we, we're getting too kind of diametric and we're getting too different sides uh, proposed to us here we've got the kind of messy cool just sticks in the woods and yeah, then we've yeah, got which yeah. is punk apparently uh, and and then we've got we've got craft and seriousness is there is your, your I really like your post-punk kind of like analogy I really buy it but what part did craft have in post-punk oh fuck okay so I think there is I think there is an intersection somewhere between DIY and um, self-build and punk. It's probably, for me, more to do with, uh, I guess, political questions about land ownership and stuff like that. If you look at kind of squatting, if you look at maybe plot land movements and stuff, there's a kind of non-hippie, very, very direct, quite <coughs> urgent sense of ownership over, um, you know, where you live, how you get hold of it, who owns that stuff. So I think maybe, for me, that is probably a, a way in to that question, which also conveniently avoids... Uh, the sort of more bourgeois Walter's Way kind of end of um, self, but I like Walter's Way as well. But, um, I always get told off for being interested in it by people who say like that's got nothing to do with like solving the housing crisis. That's a kind of like you know niche bijou interest, and I kind of agree with them on that, despite being interested. Um, craft, yeah, that is. Um, I mean, I'm the least DIY self-built person in the entire universe. I can't make anything. I can't build anything. I'm completely impractical. And I'm also very interested in an extremely... Um, I'm interested in forms of architecture that also have nothing to do with that at all. Could not possibly be made in that way. Um, and have um, uh, extremely difficult technique embodied in them, coming back to your question. So that, for me, I guess is, yeah, where, where, where post-punk is useful is there's a kind of attitude which is um, clearly opened up by punk, which is a rejection of all sorts of um, re, well, kind of sterile or slightly tedious or extremely kind of bogged down in certain kinds of technique, which just sort of become utterly unexpressive after a while, unless you're a massive kind of yes fan. I don't know, but I'm not. Um, <laughs> Uh, but they are about technique in another way. Sometimes the technique is like doing it wrong, but very, in a very particular and precise way. So I guess for me, context is more important than how those things get judged. So I kind of agree with Pierce in some ways, like seeing things bad, deliberately badly built is extremely bracing and interesting. But, and there's a, always, but, there's a, but there's a secretary process that there goes on afterwards. Well, of course, they're incredibly precisely... Um, uh, wrong. <laughs> and that's probably where more where I'm interested in them. There we go. There we put that on the T-shirt. Um, just I'm just going to get around everyone and um, Kaz. Uh, great. Thank um, you. You kind of talked about the the idea that the the punk and architecture never the twain shall meet. Um, punk. There's punk design. There was punk 
music, punk fashion, but where, where, what's the line for you? Where does it stop? I mean, why can't there? I mean, I, I can think of if anyone else wants to venture some punk buildings. Um, some well, I of the... think that this, all this talk about self-build is a bit of a red herring, really, because punk was always, you know, Malcolm and the Situationists sort of, they were always interested in the iconography of ruins and the city as a ruin and a city as a place to occupy and, and probably less concerned with building things. I know, you know, Asgi Yorn sort of flirted with this idea of vernacular architecture very early on, but the situations were about a city that existed and how people sort of moved through that city and they were just unconcerned with how to build things. I think eventually in the manifesto there was this idea there was going to be a situationist city at some point, but they never really got there. And I know... Um... <laughs> anyway, carry on. Sorry, sorry, I just that popped up. I mean, I don't even know how to pronounce that Ukrainian dude's name, but you know, the Hasia, the Shteshtiklov, you know, the architecture of the new formulary, you know, there was a, a lot about we're not going to have Corbusier like prisons, we're going to have an architecture of eternal adaptability. There was actually an architectural idea in that, but. but Where is it? In the. The thingy of the new formerly, it, it's okay, a so TCH. It's, so it's not in... No, it's not, but it's in the situation, in the but it, it disappears in punk. So is it, is it, is archi where, at what line do you say, you know, like, I think you could say Ron Ayer is a bit punk, can't you? No. 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 <laughs> no. I mean, you could, you could yeah. sort of...
exclusively the kind of good life Walter Siegel way. Um, mm -hmm. Again, having grown up in Calcutta, I saw self-build as a sort of desperate means for people who didn't really have any other option. But there was um, a lack of regulation, is a lack of regulation in that part of the world, that means that people make do um, with the resources that they have. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, I guess, that's where I thought the DIY or die thing came from in, in that context. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's quick, it's dirty. It's not posturingly quick and dirty. It's ne necess necessarily quick and dirty. <laughs> In terms of Pishak, I think uh, it's not really punk. It's, it's, somewhere, it's somewhere in the middle. It's trying to bring some of that agency and empowerment, perhaps, to inhabitants, to residents, to users, as opposed to a top-down provision method where you provide something that's totally made. So I think it's not quite punk, but it's about empowerment, empowerment okay, perhaps. That's great. Um, I want to hear from you, and you, and you, and you. Uh, you had your, your hand up there, and uh, if anyone wants to try, put, you know, the conventional means of just saying you want to have anything to say, Stephen, you're going to have something to say, over there. Couldn't we say that architecture was actually before punk in this territory? If punk is defined as three chords and the truth, isn't that something that architecture lost but had a long time ago? When you go back to the Bauhaus, it's a very small list of materials. It's reusing industrial materials into living architecture to make machines for living, for, for systems, for all these sorts of things. But ultimately, it was about making habitable space with very simple systems. The problem right now is buildings are so damn sophisticated. They're symphonies with different, with, with sound mixes and with acousticians and with, you know, technicians and, and so on. It's too sophisticated to make punk anymore. But maybe it was before punk was punk. Very good point. Yes, I'm going to collect a few. Um, if, just put your hand up and I'll collect a few. So you were talking about self-build. And um, self-build, let's say, I don't want to um, make somebody uncomfortable, but... Uh, okay, so shed, for, for me, shed is not architecture. The architecture is actually about the beauty. So if you create, if you design, you design the beauty. That's something that people going to and say, it's stunning. The shed for me is not architecture. It's, as you said, it's needed for living, but it's not for me. I mean, that's my point of view. So for me, for example, pop culture and the Baroque, it's the architecture, kind of. Great Where, point. Great so point. when you're saying about the, uh, the, the punk, I don't think the punk and architecture has anything to do with it. Uh, there's someone on your side there, Kaz. Yeah, she's playing that. And one just behind. Thank you. Now, um, I can't believe I'm sitting in a room full of Londoners and they're trying to kind of posit the idea that there is no intersection between punk and hippie. What is a crusty? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I did experience the squatting community in South London in the late 80s, early 90s, and it was the DIY kind of ethics of people who thought they were being punk they were hippie enough to be involved with people like Spiral Tribe or whatever, and they were having to make do and mend in kind of a post right way. So, um, yeah, crusties, that's who they were. <laughs> wow, the future of architecture is crusties. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we need a point, particularly from the bar here. Um, Charles, I'm gonna come to you next. Yeah, one of the things we, uh, we were discussing when we set up this talk was um, it, 
about what punk actually was, but what was the spirit of punk in a way. And one of the things I find slightly frustrating about the conversation so far is that it seems to be um, buried sort of in the past about what things were. We live in an age, we're coming up to the first end of the second decade of the 21st century. I think a lot of the world and architecture in particular has carried on regardless with a lot of the modes of thought and thinking from the, the uh, 20th century. And, you know, if you think about the spirit of punk, anti-authoritarianism, direct action, not selling out, I think those are the key questions because it's not really about asking people... It's, in a way, it's an actual, actual tragedy that people are asked to self-build and find their own way forward because that is an abdication of responsibility in my mind of the profession. Shouldn't we be the ones who operate as the medium for that between people's needs and the reality is the modern world? Shit, shit just got real, ladies and gentlemen. As well. um, wow, that, 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 that took it up a notch there. Um, and I don't mean to bring it down, but Charles, you're next. Um, I'm happy to bring it down. Well, no, I wanted specifically, I wanted specifically, and I don't know why, I really don't know why, but you, Spiral Tribe, <laughs> go. That's weird, actually, because I also I have a, a dark, distant kind of uh, past in squatting as well. And going to those things, I can I totally agree. There's a sort of connection there. That's the point I was trying to make, I suppose, about the kind of um, intersection of squatting and some sort of idea about um, legal and political issues around space, which you could say there's a connection to, to punk ethos. Um, I'm going to be really unpunk and try and unpack some of the comments that were made. Cause I'm sort of interested. The last one, I think that was my point. Like, yeah, you can help everyone. And you can put yourself as the sort of medium to make a better world, but that's a deeply unpunk thing to do. That's being helpful. And I applaud that, and I try to be helpful too. But I don't think it's fucking up anything. I think it's the opposite. It's trying to be like a good person, which obviously we should. I don't think Sid Vicious ever troubled himself with being a good person. Um, I guess... Um, which, what's that? Yeah. That, okay. So here, so here's the thing. I think guys, just like we all want the, the, the trivial point. Just put your hand up. You can get the mic. You'll get the mic. No, no, no worry. No, no. It was a very good point. Very it is a really point. good point. But maybe what it comes down to then is to that it. there's some different strands here. So there's Kaz's kind of strand. I think if I was to mansplain that for you, that's okay. Um, <laughs> actually, the thing about punk is. This is, this, this is the job tonight, mansplaining or womansplaining, isn't it? That's what we're here for. Um, otherwise, just don't say anything, I suppose. Um, uh, is, there's an intellectual tradition to that, right? And so the situationist, Malcolm McLaren, and, um, uh, and that whole idea of basically an idea being more important than how it's made, who does it, whatever, that's a very intellectual kind of strand of punk, and I'm very interested in that. I think, for me, there's much more to take from that than there is any kind of cartoon idea of rebellion or, you know, um, any kind of... In, in a way, any idea of not selling out. Because in the context of Malcolm McLaren and all those people, not selling out is totally meaningless. They sold out endlessly, over and over and over again. They were, you know, the situationist thing is a much subtler positioning of constantly trying to sort of subvert a certain kind of moment. So I think the idea of, of looking for kind of origins and trying to find some sort of authentic punk moment is deeply suspect anyway. 
Okay. Uh, I'm just going to go back. I'm going back to the uh, peers. Uh, a quick one now. So a couple of things. I think that um, one, I think the big problem with architecture is that we have to consider things to be beautiful. For me, the most interesting buildings are the most ugly buildings. Um, I speak as someone that has only ever really built sheds, but um, I think the first building that we, the proper building that we did, I wanted it to be ugly. I was kind of ashamed of this world that architecture was supposed to belong to, which is experts producing things that were judged on their kind of aesthetic merits. And there was a very strict set of codes that within architecture of things that you could do. So we wanted to make a building out of kind of blue plastic and concrete, but the cheapest and nastiest materials that we could possibly find. When we started studying the woods, I was like, God, let's not have proper materials. Can we just like have some crap we get from the builder's merchant? Because as soon as we use real timber, we're doing like what those craft people do, you know, within architecture. So I think that the problem within architecture is that um, is is that we. Well, it's just, it's just it's a kind of one-dimensional reading. I mean, for me, it's a very simple thing. Architecture is a vehicle. Can I just say one? Well, let me finish. Architecture is a vehicle that we use to explore ideas. Just, and it's like, just, saying, it's like saying films have to be happy. You know, architecture has to be beautiful. Architecture is a, is a language we use to explore ideas. They can be really sad. They can be really happy. They can be really ugly. What is our story? So to presuppose that things have to be beautiful, I think, is, is problematizes architecture. Yeah, yeah. Nigel Co I think I, th I think to jump to Nigel Coates, I think Nigel Coates wasn't punk because he was just doing what architects or designers do. He received a commission, he did it, um, he was posturing, and you know he did the agency that Nigel used was no different from any other any other way of doing architecture. And in a way, what I'm most interested in is what is the the kind of illicit way of doing architecture. And that for me is the most punk. Doing architecture when you're not kind of supposed to be doing it and people don't necessarily want it, you know. Okay, okay. Did you discuss this with Carolyn Quentin when you were going around the... Uh... <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah. <laughs> what was it called? The world's most amazingly beautiful buildings, anyway. Uh... <laughs> well... Oops. Stephen. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, I'm, uh, I'm not going to stick in the past, because the past to me, with the Bauhaus, the Black Mountain College, and even Dada and the, the, the Cafe Society um, of the 1920s and so forth, maybe the roots of punk and the roots of situationism. I just have to disagree slightly where... I think you've got to sort of suggest that there is an essence of um, the situationist movement that was through the 50s, post-Marxist, political, radical, through the 60s, 68, then through the 70s, that you then have the, the zenith in the punk movement. And I think we may be getting a little bit confused here. I think there is a spirit of punk in Nigel Coates. Nigel Coates and Ron Arad, from my view, in the early 90s, were doing stuff that nobody else was doing. They didn't give a fuck. Sorry, Louis. Um, um, they, 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 really, they really would go for it. And they were against the establishment. They were against the homogeneity. And I actually applaud them for that. In the same way as I think... That, that Sean and, 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 and the early fat movement and then later picked up by Charles actually, you know, stuck against the, the, the system a little bit. So there, there's a spirit and a heritage there. That's all I want to say. Okay. Uh... <clears throat> I think 
Hi, look, I think there's a sort of, there's a bias in this room that, you know, that, well, the punk is, you know, this sort of positive thing that we want to associate with architecture, but I'm, I doubt it. Someone didn't like that point. <laughs> I, I wonder whether there's, uh, there's something more quintessential about the, the, the microphone situation. Censorship. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Yeah. Okay. Maybe maybe that's uh, maybe it's a red herring, you know, to 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 try and push this whole conversation around. Where's the overlap, or what is the relationship between punk and architecture? You know, we're a really interesting point that was maybe debated with Charles earlier was about making a difference, or who, you know, why do we do architecture? Why do punks exist? You know, in the first place. You know, there's the rebellion, there's the instantaneous shirt ripping, there's that ad sense of adventure, there's non-institutionalization, but we're all the man. You know, we do, we're, we're architects, we've got that professionalism, we've established that. So where's the courage? You know, where's the courageous idols in architecture who are just saying, fuck it? I, th I think I will, I will be quite, quite short, but you know, we, I think the, the, this idea of punk is, we've tried, all, all of us, we've tried at some point in our life. I think, uh, I like the, the, the idea, this, this, this word, uh, amateur, that, uh, in different words, I like it because we were amateur at, uh, at one point, we've tried, you, you came with us in Latvia, you remember? You know, we, we were doing a Russian military base, I've never stuff. seen you know, him before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so we, we've tried for, for a few years, but it's, it's true that we evolved in our, you know, we, like if I look back 15 years ago, okay. Mm -hmm. Now, it wasn't uh, that long ago. Uh, no, 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 no. Was yeah, it? Time Shit. flies. Yeah, yeah, fucking hell. Yeah, okay. you know. Yeah, so no, I, I totally, we, I, we occupied space, we occupied, you know, and then, and then you, you need something else, you need to evolve, you know, and then, then when you start to think about it, you're not punk anymore, you know, at, the, at that right moment, I think. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good way of thinking about it. Um, you've had your say. Uh, Shumi, sorry. Sorry, uh, I apologize. Right. Um, so you're talking about punk as a kind of phase that we go through. Yeah. So do you think every generation has its punk phase? In that sense, then where <laughs> is it now? So then where would, who's being punky now? Assemble? Nah. <laughs> no, their ripping off exist. Hang on, I'm not, I'm not in the right place. No, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. It's a joke. Yeah. No, it is a very, it's a very good, it is a very good point. This man over here. Yeah, microphone. Charles is groaning. Thinks there's going to be a keynote speech. <laughs> yeah, did you not bring them? Um, uh, very interesting uh, question about um, uh, can architecture and punk intersect? Maybe one of the reasons it can't is because of the absence of um, a subject in the discussion tonight, which is very revealing, which is class. Punk was working class. 
architecture is incredibly bourgeois. And of course, um, I was one of the, uh, a lucky working class person who was brought up in a period when opportunities were available to people like me to become things like professors of architecture and all the rest of it. But that's the thing that seems to me the kind of missing in the current generation of architects, because there are very, very few working class kids in the architecture schools I teach in. Um, and I think that's a kind of condition of um, a kind of wider political uh, uh, condition. But I'm very surprised no one's mentioned that at all tonight. All of the punk bands were working class Joe kids. Strummer went to Westminster. <laughs> Who? Joe Strummer. Joe Strummer, he was, he was one of the few uh, punks who actually wasn't working class. <laughs> he, he went was... to the same school as Pink bah, Floyd. Bah. <laughs> But, you know, so but, my question is, where's was the kind the, of, where's the, the righteous anger? Where's the, the righteous anger? He was the best punk. No, it's a good point. It's a good point. I, 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 was, I was being facetious. It's a very good point. Um, well, I used, I used to work for uh, someone who probably was considered universally as a very bad man. And you may know him, Charles, Nicholas Van Hoekstraten. Oh. Uh, he built the largest house in the 20th century. And That's uh, a he good. chose the, for a choice of architect. He chose a student from Brighton architectural course, and I think he built this house. It was a complete monstrosity, yeah. with lots of different styles, because the establishment hated him, and he just wanted to produce something that was uh, really ugly. And um, and then I think he felt like an outsider. And that's one of the things about how probably punks felt. Yeah. Didn't want the um, kind of approbation of society. And so Nicholas Hoekstraat as well went on to acquire two million acres in Zimbabwe. And one of his best friends was Mugabe. And the first thing he did was take every white person off the uh, estate and then start rebuilding it. And he's still there today. So maybe um, is that, being punk. Is that, is that, and that, that's the mo if we're looking for punk buildings, would you suggest that that's a punk building? Um, it was, it's punk in its intentionality of pissing people off and display of wealth without any concern for the aesthetics of it. And knowing that it was reported in the newspapers all the time, it was followed how it was uh, coming along. That's very interesting. Laura, sitting next to you. Picking on me. Um, I guess I would say it isn't the only reason that like architecture isn't punk is that it takes too long. And like the whole reason why we continuously keep talking about self-build as being punk is just because it's one of the fastest forms of getting architecture done. Good point. Over here, this gentleman here. Uh, just following on from what Sean was saying, the other elephant in the room seems to be money. Um, and is it possible to be punk now when tuition fees are £10,000 approaching a year and uh, the cost of land is so expensive? And just another point, actually, just um, Walter Siegel has been uh, dissed quite a lot, I think, this evening. Um, and I want to stand up for him because uh, I think everyone from the two pioneering uh, cul-de-sacs in Lewisham that built their own homes were not middle class at all. They were on what well, they were randomly picked from Lewisham Council's council house list. Um, and secondly, they were picked, there's another 
were, as we mentioned this evening, by, um, I think, one of the very few anarchist architects who happened to be running housing in Lewisham at the time, a chap called Brian Richardson. But maybe we should talk a little bit more about anarchism. Silence. I'm going to be anarchic on this one and say, no, we shouldn't. I mean, look, I'm not going to talk about anarchism, but to echo Tom's point, I've been thinking about, let's say, recent forms of expression that have been less institutionalized, and eventually they all become commercialized, or that's what we've seen, at least in recent years. I'm just going to pick up two that you won't be able to disagree with. Um, Pop-ups. Oh, try me. Pop-ups and blogs. Both of those were absolutely DIY mechanisms to do what you wanted, and both of those have been absolutely hijacked by um, various forces of capital for their own ends. So now you get pop-ups that fluff a development, or you get blogs that are monetized by advertising. And so the space to actually do something outside of the constraints where, it's, um, where money is what's motivating it are increasingly few. It's a, a very good very good point, and in terms uh, uh, spatially as well. Um, uh, and Charles, with your um, with your understanding uh, and interest in the suburban, um, one of the things about punk is the the spaces in which it took place. We consider punk to be an exclusively urban phenomenon. Um, is there an argument for suggesting that our fixation on the urban is perhaps overweening and the spaces in which punk really took place were in suburban bedrooms, front rooms, garages? And it doesn't really... We, we fixate on the, the icons of punk, the, the, the Malcolm McLarens, the Sex Pistols, whereas in actual fact we should be thinking of the stiff little fingers, the undertones. Um, and all the, the, the other bands that evolved in suburban parts of different, different countries. A lot of the place, um, a, a place where a lot of it took place was art schools. That was really, really important in the development of punk is where the Pistols had their first gig and so many people had an art school education and went on, you know, when they, they were sort of empowered by seeing these completely untutored people pick up an instrument or make some clothes. They actually sort of came out and, and did things out of art school. So I think it's very important. And I wonder whether or not the education of architects has a little bit to do with the unpunkishness of architects because number one it takes a really really long time um, but number two they, it doesn't really ha well in some cases it happens in art schools but there's not that same sort of clamor of a lot of different disciplines interacting and architects are sort of siloed off a little bit from the rest I don't know is that fair Charles Shumi you work with Jeremy though I do work with Jeremy, but Jeremy doesn't have a lot to do with the architecture yeah, whoa, 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 course, whoa, 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 um, I think, obviously, uh, rarely, Sean, rarely for Sean, he's raised a, a useful point. Um, <laughs> that, of course, class is important, but as, as the questions immediately after that point reveal, it's not much more complicated than that. And I think, um, 
I'm going to make an equally extravagant claim that will be immediately unpacked as total nonsense, which is that all pop movements come from the suburbs, right? Is there any pop movement that hasn't come? It all comes from a sort of boredom and dissatisfaction, which then becomes kind of urbanised, so it moves to the centre, and that's what happens. I think Shumi made a really interesting point, which is about blogs, which is, I think, that at any one time, there is an opportunity to kind of short-circuit the system by which you get some kind of voice, um, and at that time, or for a short period of time, it opened up, as social media has, an opportunity to um, kind of get rid of the established hierarchies. That's what's really interesting and, and liberating about, was in, interesting and liberating about blogs and is interesting and liberating about social media at its best, is that people who would never, ever talk to each other and, and, and you could gain an audience with, people that, that previously could have just ignored your existence. So I think that is interesting, and you just have to say, well, where's the opportunity now? Um, if things like pop-ups have been colonised, then obviously there are other opportunities that allow you to do that. So it's more about... What's that? They're the future. Podcast. No, there's no future. <laughs> yeah. Publication. Hello. Very, very good. One of the things I've just thought about is maybe our podcast, the new fanzines, because fanzines were really important. The whole DIY gig was really, really important. You made your own record label, you made your own publicity, you made your own fanzines. Uh, that is very rarely apparent within the architecture world now, because obviously it's a multidiscipline sport. Uh, I was in art school when the punk thing was kind of moving into post-punk, and I was in a suburban art school, and it was... Brilliant. It was brilliant because punk gave the permission for young suburban kids to wear makeup, to play crap music, to do what the fuck they wanted. And it was absolutely fantastic, particularly if you're on foundation, because you had to suck up as much as you could on the foundation, yeah. And that was just absolutely liberating. Not punk, but also David Bowie was something else that just gave loads and loads of. And class as well. I came from a council estate, I went to art school. Um, and I got a degree just when all that was happening. And it was free. I didn't pay anything. My council bought me my first camera. That doesn't happen anymore. So I think it's very difficult for young people from not quite such privileged backgrounds to start taking part in that architectural debate because they're not in architectural schools, from what I could see. Yep, uh, this is kind of touching on the pop-ups getting eaten by consumerism. Um, that which goes back to the situationists, and even the situationist ideas ended up getting kind of taken over by consumerist society who took the situation's own, situationist's own tactic of detournement and re-detourned it to become consumer use. And that kind of then links to why I think that Nigel Coates is not at all punk, is that he basically, in, ecstas in ecstasy, he kind of used situationist ideas in a city that was full of uh, malls, casinos, adverts, and, you know, all of these, they were situationist ideas, but they were being used by consumer society. That's it. Okay. Can I just make a quick point? King, King Mob, the, um, the UK situationists, who are a very small cell out of Newcastle, they were builders. They absolutely despised Archigram 
and Cedric Price, and in fact they parodied some of his, parodied some of his work in King Molbeko because they thought that what was considered avant-garde was yet another iteration of the spectacle. So I think that's always worth bearing in mind. Just worth making that point, I think. Um, hi, I was extremely intrigued by the whole conversation and, uh, you know, by the title uh, in the beginning. Uh, I have to admit, I, I'm still in, uh, inspired by punk, but as, as much as I am by any other avant-garde, you know, punk for me is, uh, is, is the moment, catalyst moment for change. And that, that's what I don't see enough at the moment. Because for me, punk is also about uh, finding that sort of virginity that you can get awareness, that you can play with three chords. And uh, architectural schools and architectural culture is getting very obsessed with shadow gaps and, you know, trimless windows and things like that. And, they, and you know, I wish there would, there would be a bit more of that spirit, which for me is still can exist, of irreverence, but also the confidence that things could be different. There's no right or wrong. You can do bad building or decent building, but just try out and experiment, and that will be a catalyst for change. So that's what I see punk is, apart from the historical moment in particular. Thank you very much. Uh, oh, go on, just one last one, you little minx. Yeah, go on, one, and then we're, the panel are going to sum it all up. There's an amazing bar full of booze that literally I am the only one drinking from at the moment. Uh, and then we can all have a chat and we're all going to continue the conversation because I've heard a lot of really interesting things and a great discussion. This guy, the panel, bar, chat. No pressure. I uh, guess I was just looking at punk and architecture and thinking, well, architecture to me is becoming looking around the new, the shiny, the refined, the corporate. And actually, the punk idea is the reappropriation, the subversion, the intervention of you know, squatting, digging for victory, getting on with it, just fucking doing it. And I think, you know, in the state we're living now, we've got so many empty buildings here around us just going, well, let's just fucking take them on and let's just do it. Rather than sit and wait for the bureaucratic process to get fucking right, to drop it down, create loads of big flats, let's use pallets, let's just get, you know, peers is banging on about scraps out of skips, let's just do that, you know. Let's make the most of the time we've got, pop-ups or whatever. Okay, so we're summing, we're summing up now. I stand by my point that architecture and punk just are not, not bedfellows at all. I think Malcolm and Vivian pulled up off that boat trip down the Thames and got, everybody got arrested. Like, more of that, please. You know, more architects in the clink. If you, if you really um, lock them up, starting with Nigel Coates. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, but I think um, the idea that Shimi made, you know, blogs and um, permission to sort of speak working class people, I think that's really important. And um, my old man's curated a show at Somerset House. This is a bit of a plug for that. It's about independent magazines. And when we looked around, at, um, you know, it goes right back to Blast, Wyndham Lewis's manifesto, and lots of manifestos in there. And um, 
right through sort of um, peace news in the 1950s where they had the police come in and dissemble their printing presses. People, when they're punk, go right out to the edges of what's acceptable in society and they really pay the price for that. And when we're looking at contemporary magazines and also architecture magazines, the sort of sense of permission to speak that is in those magazines is really palpable. They're just not powerful because if you're raised... Um, in a sort of middle to upper class home, you've just had permission to speak since you were a child. And actually, there's an incredible bloody power in people who are not permitted to do things, doing things. And it just goes back to my point about amateurism. And there's a tremendous embedded power in that when you you take that brave step of, of you know, moving beyond what you're permitted to do. Um, and I think the best thing that architects could do is build some bloody housing. You know, don't worry about being punks. Just, just fucking house us, man. It's really, really, temp- it's really tempting, but I'm not going to rise to the housing thing just now. I'm just going to... Um, there's loads of things that I've agreed and disagreed with, so let's continue over Negroni's later. But just to pick up on, I think it was Tom and Kaz's point about arts education and how that's changing... For sure. You know, students, let's, let's just stick in London for a moment as we're here, but you, you pay nine grand a year in tuition and then God knows how many grand for rent. Of course, what you want to know after you get out of four years of that or five years of that, seven years of that, if you're counting the whole architecture education is how the fuck am I going to pay this back? I need vocational skills. I don't have time to be making radical statements. I need to worry about the 60 grand of debt that's accruing every day that I'm paying rent in London. So this is a really a really pressing concern for many young people that I see teaching every day get palpably, visibly, physically stressed out by the fact that they don't have room to think about the things that we've been talking about today. That being said, I don't want to be completely um, pessimistic. We've been talking about this crossover between punk and architecture, and I don't think it's necessarily a question that we can answer with a yes or no, there is a relationship, no, there isn't. Um, Things influence each other and, and the, the repercussions, the echoes and the sort of effects of punk as an ideological movement do continue to resonate with my students today. So, And actually, if we think about the oppressive political and economic environment in the late 70s and early 80s, which gave rise to punk, there are parallels that we can draw today. There are obviously things in advanced capitalism that are very different, but there are parallels in terms of things that are pissing us off that are parallel. So let's see if this conversation perhaps has some traction in years to come. Thanks. So... Uh... Oh. I'm your... Um... Warm-up man, Pierce. Not, not for the first time. Um, okay, so I guess you could say that, I, I don't know, if, if punk has like a relevance or it has an importance, it's in its kind of liberative potential, right? It can liberate you from, and it liberated music, but it can liberate other things from certain kinds of just like overwhelming, tedious structure and disciplinary sort of uh, tropes. The, the downside of that, I suppose, is like, you know, well... Who does it liberate? Which is maybe where Sean's point is, which is that um, you know you have to be in an op- a position of some freedom to be liberated. I-, I would say the situation in architecture schools at the moment is not that they don't have a very wide demographic and a class structure coming into them. I think they have a much wider one than they did 20, 30 years ago. 
The issue is that the students are, as Shumi says, already very well, uh, are kind of under a massive burden of debt, which completely kind of like controls what their opportunities are and what kind of uh, liberation they might seek. It's very hard to be seeking liberation if you're also paying off an extraordinarily large amount of money. That actually is a massive challenge to the architecture to do anything about being a kind of experimental and kind of progressive force. And I think that's a challenge you see all the time when you're in architecture school, which is sometimes it feels like talking about uh, a kind of experimental uh, attitude is a kind of foreign language. Like, why would I, how would that be useful <laughs> to me when I want to earn a living? So I think that's a huge challenge. That's a political question, really, about how we reshape our attitude to a kind of um, the political economy of higher education. I think that's a really kind of massive uh, challenge. But I do think, I go back to the beginning, that post-punk offers a kind of way to think about not get bogged down in certain kind of, like, foundation myths about where things come from and what's the true punk and what's the real kind of like uh, kind of authenticity of that ideology but an opportunity to reinvent the thing that you do and that's the really kind of massive challenge and opportunity I think so I think my final point is uh, in addition to Laura's point about how long things take and Sean's point about class of which I'm guilty the the um, for having no class, of course. But the, 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 the thing that, for me, means that architecture, in inverted commas, can never really be punk is this sense of our own entitled professionalism, that we do this thing, it is called architecture, we have a line around the edge of it and no one else can do it. As it happens, I'm full of optimism about the punk in architecture. It just happens that architects aren't doing it. It's all the people that aren't architects. I live in the country and I see all around me people who aren't architects building all sorts of crazy shit in illicit ways to solve real problems. They don't have space, they need some space, they build it. They don't give a fuck about planning. They just get some stuff and they do it, whether it's their land or not. And I think that the reality is we're so consumed by what it is we do as architects, whereas most of the world aren't architects, most of the buildings aren't done by architects, and most of the most punky buildings can never be done by architects because of our own sense of entitlement. Ladies and gentlemen, wow, we've had Krusty's as the future of architecture. We've had Nigel Coates, yes or no? Uh, I don't know where we came to. No, I'm not, I am literally not doing a vote on this. Uh, and we have had remarkably little, I remember watching the Buzzcocks when they came on top of the Pops, and for that, you are my heroes for this evening. It was very, a great, great conversation, but in the spirit of punk, the bar is open. The people you've been listening to and hearing what they have to say are still here, so let's have a chat, let's have some conversation, let's get some beers. Well done. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.